and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 28 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Vostok 2 with German Titov. After Alan Shepard and Gus Grissom's suborbital flights, and less than four months after Gagarin became the first man in space, the Soviet Union stunned the world with yet another manned mission. You may recall from episode 22, the original group of 20 cosmonauts was reduced to the Vanguard 6. Titov and Gagarin became the obvious frontrunners of the Vanguard 6. According to their cosmonaut instructors, Solovyov, Titov was brighter, more inquisitive, and more active than Gagarin. Solovyov believed that Gagarin was selected to be first because he had a winning handsome smile. Soviet news reports of the day said Titov was so delighted to hear that Gagarin had been selected that he jumped for joy, hugging and kissing his comrades. But these reports were untrue. Titov admitted many years later, Of course I did not jump into his arms. I just stood there for a few moments. I understood quite well that I had the same level of training as Gagarin. Naturally, I was disappointed. Until the last moment, I had hoped to be the one. The decision to send Gagarin first in space in Vostok 1 was announced just days before the April 12, 1961 launch. Two days later, after the 108-minute flight, Titov fully understood that Yuri Gagarin would be the one remembered forever. Many years later, Titov said, the historical significance became clear only on April 14th, when we were invited onto Red Square, and I saw an ocean of people screaming, smiling, all happy, singing songs. But this time, August of 1961, it was Titov's turn to pilot a Vostok spacecraft on a day-long orbital mission. Prior to the launch, heavily censored Soviet accounts of the Vostok 2 mission indicated that there was a great debate over the proposed flight duration. While vacationing in the Crimea following Gagarin's flight, Chief Designer Korolev pondered over the plan of the second flight. At the time, medical specialists and other experts insisted that the mission be limited to three orbits. Their main argument was that the first three orbits were ensuring landing within southern Russia, with the landing site drifting westward with each consequent orbit. Between the 8th and the 13th orbit, the landing would fall into the ocean. After the 13th orbit, the landing would again be possible in the Soviet Union, however only in the inhospitable and remote regions of the Far East. It would take a day-long flight before the landing opportunity would shift back to the European part of Russia. However, such duration was considered unacceptable to the experts. Data from Vostok test missions indicated that dogs apparently experienced vestibular problems after six or seven orbits. Nikolai Kamanin, the head of Cosmot Training, and Vladimir Yazdovsky, leading space medicine expert, went to the Crimea for a meeting with Korolev. Their plan called for a three-orbit flight. 
Korolev wanted a day-long mission, since it would have to be inevitably achieved either in the second or in the third flight, and it would validate that a human could function in space during a complete day-long cycle. While still in the Crimea, Korolev disclosed to Titov a plan for a day-long flight and mentioned proposals about a three-orbit mission. According to Titov's Soviet-era memoirs, during a formal approval of the mission duration, officials asked his opinion about the duration of the flight, and Titov naturally supported Korolev's call for a day-long flight. However, the commission cautiously decided to plan the flight for a day, but make a final call based on the health of the cosmonaut after three orbits. On July 3, 1961, Top Soviet officials overseeing the rocket industry, including Korolev, signed a top-secret note declaring preparations for the Vostok 2 mission to be completed. The document was addressed to the Central Committee of the Communist Party, but it was essentially a request to the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev to approve the flight plan for the second Vostok. According to the document, the mission would last up to 24 hours with a landing at the beginning of the 18th orbit. The goals of the mission were, 1. To study the influence of weightlessness on the human body during a long-duration flight. 2. To test control and orientation of a spacecraft under manual control. And 3. To test filming and observation with optical devices of the Earth's surface by the cosmonaut. The document placed the available window for the Vostok 2 launch between July 25th and August 5th, 1961. As in Gagarin's mission, the document asked to issue a public announcement about the mission immediately after the confirmation that Vostok 2 had reached orbit. In other words, the Soviets weren't going to acknowledge a launch until it was successful, a stark difference from the openness of the U.S. program. On July 6th, a presidium of the Communist Central Committee approved the mission plan. There were some important safety precautions added for this long-duration flight. First, to ensure radiation safety, Soviet astrophysics centers conducted careful monitoring of the sun's activity. High-altitude balloon flights were also launched to measure radiation levels in the stratosphere. In addition, the spacecraft was equipped with radiation measuring equipment which had the capability to transmit telemetry to ground stations and the cosmonaut had a portable radiation counter in his capsule. As with Gagarin's mission, the orbit was expected to have a perigee of 180 kilometers which was low enough to ensure natural orbit decay and re-entry of the spacecraft within two to eight days of the mission in case of a failure of the braking engine. At the same time, the spacecraft had enough power and air for a 10-day mission. The spacecraft used for Vostok 2 was a Vostok 3KA, almost identical to Gagarin's except for some modifications made based on the flight of Vostok 1. The TV transmission system, which worked poorly on Vostok 1, was upgraded. The telemetry system was also updated with the signal shortwave transmitter, which was designed to help track the spacecraft and also 
to serve as a backup downlink channel for medical data when more reliable UHF communications were not possible outside of Soviet territory. Vostok II also carried an upgraded air conditioning system. Titov was given a professional-grade Soviet-built Convos movie camera, which was modified for spaceflight and could record on black and white and color film. Titov also received an optical telescope with magnification from three to five times. The launch vehicle was a Vostok 8K-72K, the same as Vostok 1. On the eve of the flight, Korolev visited Titov and his backup, Nikolaev, and assured them that preparations for a launch had been going on as scheduled. Sleep well, he told them, before returning to the launch pad. However, most engineers and specialists did not get to sleep well. They were awakened at 3 a.m. and were at the launch facility by 4 a.m. At 5, the state commission gave approval to start fueling the engines. Titov was awakened before dawn on August 6, 1961. The stars were still out, but the sky was turning red in the east. As with Vostok 1, Titov went through suiting-up procedures, this time with Nikolaev. The planned 90-minute operation of attaching sensors to Titov's body lasted 40 minutes longer than expected. Titov complained that it disrupted the pre-launch schedule. Two hours before liftoff, Titov and Nikolaev took the familiar ride to the launch pad on board the blue bus. The ride concluded with the traditional space helmet kiss. Nikolaev remained at the base of the Vostok rocket while Titov climbed to his spacecraft struggling with the summer heat. Nikolaev stayed in the bus until 30 minutes before launch. He then took off his spacesuit and went to a viewing point to see the liftoff. Vostok 2 lifted off on August 6, 1961 at 8.59 Moscow time. Here's how it sounded. Of course, there was no orchestra playing at the time. Here's Titov's reaction to the launch. After a flawless launch, Vostok 2 entered a 183 by 244 kilometer orbit. Titov received word from Mission Control that his orbital period, which is the time of making a single orbit, was 88.6 minutes. The confirmation of the correct orbit was made 20 minutes after the launch, and then Soviet media announced it to the world. At the end of his first orbit, Titov exchanged greetings with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev as he passed over the Soviet Union. At 10 a.m., Titov activated the manual attitude control of Vostok 2. 
At the beginning of the second orbit, he took 10 minutes of film of the Earth's surface and the sky. The footage then made it to the general media. Titoff also photographed a view of the Earth in the Vizor window, which was used by the pilot for manual orientation of the spacecraft in flight. These photographs would be used for training purposes. During his third orbit, Titoff ate lunch, squeezed out of tubes around 12.30 p.m. This consisted of soup, liver food paste, and black currant juice. He spilled a few drops of this and they hung in the air until he scooped them up with the lid of the tube. Titoff had been experiencing nausea since he entered weightlessness. Shortly after, he became the first person to vomit in space. Soviet sources continued to insist that Titoff was in excellent health during the flight. However, they did admit that his vestibular system had experienced some changes manifested in unpleasant feelings. Titov tried not to make sharp movements with his head to alleviate the situation. On the fifth orbit, the television camera transmitted smiling pictures of Titov to the ground as he once again passed over Soviet territory. On his sixth orbit, Titov was overcome by excitement, and his call sign became a cry of exultation. I am eagle, I am eagle, he told Mission Control. A little later, he tried to have dinner, but he was still feeling nauseous. At 18.30, before his historic nap in space, Titoff used the toilet for the first and last time during his mission. Another first in space, which Soviet press preferred not to advertise around the world. However, it was a great relief for life support engineers and doctors whom Titov assured without any hesitation that to his surprise, the flow was as easy as on Earth. According to the flight program, Titov was supposed to sleep from 18.30 on August 6th to 2 a.m. on August 7th. But while try, trying to fall asleep, he discovered his hands floating above his body so he put them under his seat belt to try to hold them down. This seemed to help, and Titov fell asleep, thus becoming the first person to sleep in space. Titov woke up several times in the middle of his sleep period, the last time just 15 minutes before the end of the period. He then fell asleep again and woke 35 minutes late. Mission controllers observing his normal pulse did not sound any alarms. During his twelfth orbit, Titov suddenly began to recover from his space sickness and became completely functional and fully fit. All during the flight, Titov experienced wide temperature fluctuations ranging from 10 to 25 degrees Celsius or 50 to 77 degrees Fahrenheit. On the morning of August 7th, during the 17th orbit around 9.57 a.m., the automated system oriented the spacecraft for the braking maneuver and retros fired for 40 seconds. Titov expected the separation between his re-entry capsule and the instrument module after 10 seconds after the engine shutdown. He heard the explosion of pyrotechnic devices which were cutting belts that tied the spear-shaped capsule to the instrument module. Titov reported the normal separation to ground control, but 
A few seconds later, he discovered that lights on the control console in his cabin, which were powered from the instrument module, remained on. Clearly, the separation did not happen. Titoff was informed about the problems during Gagarin's re-entry and could assume that a similar situation was developing during his mission. Fortunately, the tumbling, which followed the first Vostok's engine shutdown, did not take place. Unknown to Titoff, the separation between the capsule and the instrument compartment did take place. However, a multi-cable umbilical line between the two compartments apparently failed to disconnect. This explains why Titoff heard the separation jolt, but did not see control lights go out. The electric current was still flowing to the control panel via the umbilical cables. As Vostok 2 entered the atmosphere with its two main components still loosely connected, Titoff's left the blinds of the cabin windows open out of curiosity, as he later explained it. He was able to see orange glow appear behind the glass and later pieces of melting antenna zoom by. Vostok 2's re-entry trajectory was similar to Vostok 1's with braking maneuver near Africa and re-entry over the Mediterranean Sea and landing near Saratov. According to Titov, the separation between the re-entry capsule and the instrument module finally took place around 10.07 a.m., followed by the chaotic tumbling of his cabin in various directions. Flames were now raging behind the window, tearing pieces of thermal insulation off the spacecraft. A layer of soot started slowly crawling across the window. As the capsule approached maximum loads, Titoff's vision became blurry and tears started flowing. Fortunately, after less than a minute, the pressure subsided and he could breathe again. Following the re-entry, Titoff ejected from the spacecraft just a moment before the catapult rocketed him out of the cabin. Titoff was distracted by a peeling piece of interior insulation, which was probably torn off after the jettisoning of the hatch. He slightly turned his head away from the prescribed ejection position, and the following jolt of the ejection caused his nose to hit the helmet interior. As he soared away from his capsule on the ejection seat, several drops of blood from his injured nose fell onto the glass of his helmet. After a few wild turns caused by the uneven opening of the stabilization parachute, the seat started smooth descent toward the cloudy mist below with only a few breaks revealing the ground. The next jolt threw Titoff away from his seat and the main parachute opened. This time his feet were hit, apparently by the separation of the emergency supply kit. Titoff then descended below the clouds and finally saw the ground below. He saw fields, a railway with a moving freight train, a river, and villages. His descent seemed smooth until suddenly a backup parachute came out and hung below, repeating the situation in Gagarin's landing. To prevent tangling in the spare chute with his feet, Titoff tried to hold it with his hands as far as possible. As he descended to an altitude of one kilometer, the spare parachute started unfurling. In the process, it started spiraling around the main parachute almost all the way to the canopy. 
All Titov's attempt to get the spare parachute out of the way failed until the second parachute finally opened. In the last hundreds of meters before the ground, Titov struggled to control the parachutes in the incoming wind, which rotated him wildly. He saw his cabin land not far from the railway line. It was quickly approached by a car and people. To his surprise, the wind carried him toward the railway line as a Moscow-bound train was rumbling just below him. With the last gust of wind, he hit the ground with his back just a few dozen meters from the railway in a field, and just seconds after the train had passed. His head hit his helmet again, and he made a somersault on the plowed dirt. After being dragged for about 15 meters, Titov finally managed to detach the parachutes. Agricultural workers arrived just in time and helped Titov to get out of the spacesuit. Titov then took a ride on one of two cars to his landing capsule some five kilometers away. Surrounded by cheerful crowds, Titov recovered his journal and film from the capsule and had some water. According to official statistics, Titov's landing took place at 10.11 a.m. near the village of Krancy Kut in Saratov region. Vostok 2's mission lasted 25 hours and 18 minutes. The spacecraft covered over 703,000 kilometers. As his backup, Nikolaev asked Titov about the flight, Titov reportedly replied, Train your vestibular system. On August 8, 1961, Titov reported his impressions about the flight to the State Commission overseeing the launch. Numerous officials, events, and receptions had followed, along with many awards and privileges for Titov and his family members. The Soviet of Ministers decreed to pay Titov 15,000 rubles from its reserve fund, an unprecedented amount of money by Soviet standards. Here's a clip of the U.S. news report of the flight. Newspaper headlines tell the story. Hermann Titov of Russia returns to Earth after orbiting the globe 17 times in a little more than 25 hours, covering 435,000 miles, which is more than twice the distance from the Earth to the moon. An orbit by a U.S. astronaut is planned later this year. Radio Moscow reports that the 26-year-old Titov landed exactly in the planned area. This view is of the Earth, seen from a rocket outside the atmosphere. Recording equipment such as this was able to pick up Major Titov's messages as he wrote a new chapter in space history. Radar tracked Titov as it did his predecessor, Major Yuri Gagarin. With no details released by the Russians on the space flight, this series of animated scenes demonstrates the course of an orbit around the Earth. Two monuments were erected at the landing site of Vostok 2. The large one is a 9-meter-tall silver-painted stone sculpture that resembles a single bird's wing pointed skyward. The center of the wing has a series of looping openings, one atop the next, that resembles a row of feathers. To the right of the wing sculpture is a two-meter-high silver-painted square stone block with rounded corners on the front side. A portrait of Titov wearing a space helmet is on one side, 
and the other side contains a red painted text commemorating the mission. In conclusion, missing out on the first manned flight was a lifelong regret for Titov, but the disappointment gradually lessened, and it certainly did not mar a highly distinguished career in the Soviet space industry. After Gagarin's death in a plane crash in 1968, Titov became the Soviet Union's greatest surviving cosmonaut. Unwilling to risk death of another hero, the Soviets canceled a planned second mission for Titov, which caused another regret. Alexei Leonov, the first man to walk in space, called Titov the living symbol of Russian achievement in space. He continued, quote, But sometimes he couldn't conceal his true feelings about it. Sometimes he would reveal a kind of sadness that he was the second and not the first. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.